Welcome to the Configure It Done podcast. The Configure It Done podcast is a place where successful thought leaders in the SAP space come to share their leadership styles, their tips, and their unique stories on how to run successful large-scale SAP programs. Listen to the podcast to learn from their successes, their failures, their career stories, and their inspirations. This podcast is in partnership with the Black Dog Institute, who aim to create a mentally healthier world for everyone. If you wish to support the cause, please donate via the link below. Welcome to uh, episode six of the, the podcast. Um, it's great to have Stephen, um, Stephen Wells. He's worked for us on a couple of occasions. Was it three? Three occasions? That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, Stephen's a very senior um, SAP project manager. I'm delighted to have him on. Thank you for your time, Steve. Um, I'd love to ask um, a bit about your background, first of all, and, and how you got into SAP and how you got to this point. Yeah, thanks, Jay. And you're right, yes, we've got uh, quite a, a history, probably stretching back 15 years or so, mm-hmm. I think. Um, I got into SAP way back in the mid-90s, um, working for Hewlett-Packard. I was leading their intercompany um, global financial design, which was a really good opportunity to get involved. That was in the old R3 days. Mm-hmm. But it was quite a, a, a p- big period of, uh, of acquisition for uh, what was originally Digital Equipment Corporation, became Compact Computers, became HP. So from um, like a systems um, delivery standpoint, there was so much to do when uh, with all that acquisition. So the intercompany process, that included a lot of transfer pricing, where a lot of big corporations were looking to relocate their manufacturing base. I feel really bad about that now, mm-hmm. uh, knowing what we know about uh, tax minimization by corporates. But um, in those days, it, uh, it was obviously um, a, a pretty essential element of, of the, of the uh, corporate strategy. Mm-hmm. But from an experience point of view, very, uh, very useful. So uh, I was there about 10 years, then moved into contracting for uh, near on about 14 years. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, pretty much managed programs and projects uh, of varying sizes. I think most people listening to this podcast have probably done contracting in some shape or form. And my experience is it opens doors. You obviously have to uh, live by uh, your your delivery and you're as good as your last contract, uh, but it's a great exposure to leading big programs if you get that opportunity um, unfortunately, it doesn't really allow you to invest in where the technology is going. Mm-hmm. And if you do invest, it's uh, it's either an expensive exercise or you have to take time out from work. So, um, you know, I, I managed to balance the two. Um, but uh, a couple of years ago, after doing a lot of contracting with SAP, the opportunity came up to um, to, to join them full time. And I was really surprised when you uh, when you done that a career contractor and then and then you went permanent. Yeah, it, it, look, it, it it seemed like a really good time with SAP. They they go through interesting stages of expanding their project management. Um, team uh, mm-hmm. but then they downsize you know based on directives from region or global yeah but um, I think there's a momentum now certainly around aligning services with uh, with sales um, that we are getting a lot of um, a lot of increase in in work mm-hmm. uh, and anyway they've been able to uh, get headcount increases so I joined about two years ago 
It's been really, really interesting because it's not just around life cycle project delivery now, it's upgrades, it's consulting, it's QA and governance mm-hmm. audits. Um, so your uh, your engagement with customers is on many different levels. So mm. it's been really, uh, really interesting and, and beneficial. And, and where we're at now with the, the, the building tidal wave, if you like, of, of moves to S4, mm-hmm. um, that's still a few years away, but there's still a lot of ECC customer base that are still to really build a business case for that move. Mm. Um, we're seeing a lot of uh, a lot of um, a different way of, of of implementing, and that is, you know, uh, looking at proof of concepts, for example. So sure. a lot of customers want to do it in a more risk managed way um, without the big investment of time and cost and resources to take take the plunge sure. straight away. So working with customers to, to, um, to tailor uh, either a transformation or an upgrade um, or, or a consulting um, or a custom development, that's, that's, they're, they're probably the four key you know, um, work streams that, that are, are really hot at the moment around uh, ANZ. Sure, sure. Steve, I've, I've been having a lot of um, questions from um, clients in the market uh, looking to make that, that jump to, uh, to S4 and it's mainly around appetite. Are you seeing a lot of appetite from some of these ECC customers um, moving to S4 or, or not at the moment? Um, there's an appetite for the end date of ECC <laughs> um, and they're beginning to panic about uh, what an out-of-maintenance uh, engagement looks like yeah. um, so a couple of very big uh, customers have decided to split the technical upgrade from the functional upgrade um, obviously they have a pipeline of uh, delivery um, which very much is centered around business benefit and, and business funded business driven but they know this s4 journey uh, is is coming up so uh, it's quite you know, uh, feasible now to, to split the technical upgrade from from the functional upgrade. That mm-hmm. is upgrading the HANA database, running a technical upgrade to the current release, which is 2020, um, which was released in October. Um, and then if they're doing that in a POC, they can maybe activate some of the functionality that they would get mm-hmm. with 2020 in that sandbox so that they can run business improvement showcases and demonstrations to the business to decide what it is they want the most and mm-hmm. what should be prioritised so that, you know, following the technical delivery, they can then um, run through that expanded functional. Because it's, it's a huge undertaking to engage both your technical platform and, and all of your business units mm-hmm. on changes to functionality. Uh, Quite often, a lot of those customers have a lot of customising, uh, which is typical. Yep. Um, and one of their needs is to move back to standard processes. Yeah. Well, that the, the, a POC in a sandpit environment that is fully activated gives them that opportunity to compare. You know, what does that migration to standard actually mean, and what's the business impact? So, mm-hmm. um, I think a lot of customers are, are, are going to split technical and functional. 
Okay, okay, that's a good uh, good insight for any any CIO out there looking to um, yeah looking to implement. So Steve, define what a successful SAP program is for you, and um, how has your view evolved or changed over over time? Um, okay, so I guess every um, life cycle delivery has its challenges and its unique uh, characteristics, but what is is current in my thinking is uh, it comes back to two key areas around stakeholders and around the team that you're able to pull together. Mm-hmm. I think the trend now um, in terms of certainly moving towards a hybrid agile delivery is blended teams. So it's not just resources from maybe within your organisation or mm-hmm. if you're a, you know bought in client side to manage a program, you're probably faced with resources from multiple vendors, which has its unique challenges in that um, a lot of those resources uh, may may have uh, other work that they're also working on. In other words, the luxury of having a full-time resource is, is pretty rare unless it's yep. in, a, in, a, in a core area of, of scope. Um, but being able to manage commercially in particular, uh, I think the big risk area is, is around you know, multiple vendor resources mm. to be able to manage their or, or scope and plan their work and manage their uh, their velocity. Uh, I, I found it to be an extra challenge. I mean, it all pretty much is necessary in terms of sourcing talented resources from wherever they may lie. But the project manager always lump with having to administer and manage that within within budget and and schedule. So big challenge there uh, and a big risk. I think another big area of risk from a delivery standpoint is ensuring you've got the right mandate from the customer mm-hmm. or or the, or the client. So, you know, quite often you're, uh, you're forced to start a project without a formal business case approval. You might have funding, mm-hmm. um, but in terms of stakeholder approval or stakeholder buy-in for the business case, which is typically driven or, or around tangible benefits to underpin the funding that's required. But quite often there's um, a lot of benefit that isn't necessarily tied to dollars around you know, standardisation, around simplification. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly working with government agencies, really, their, their priority is not around saving headcount and saving money, which is counterintuitive for yeah, yeah. the rest of us that want to ensure, you know, what we're implementing leads to savings over time. But um, quite often the the budget cycle for governments are literally tied to, well, if you're putting forward a business case to save money, we'll take that money away from you, mm-hmm. you know, even before the project's done because of that short budget cycle. So. I think framing the uh, the justification for projects needs to be more around um, standardisation, you know, utilising new technology, mm-hmm. and certainly the move towards you know business technology platform or what we remember as uh, cloud platform, mm-hmm. SAP cloud platform. It's just been rebadged. Um, there are so many more benefits there around distributed. Uh, reporting, analytics, mobile access mm-hmm. for whatever transaction that managers do. So 
being able to uh, have input to a business case that isn't just based on dollars, I think is very important. Um, and then thirdly, I think the point I'd make on uh, successful programs is, is around stakeholders. Being able to properly identify and, and engage the various levels of, uh, of, of stakeholders because mm -hmm. they will all be different and in guarantee that on average they will not be supporters of the program for one reason or another. So you need to be flexible in, in how you engage with them and ensure commitments you do make to them that address their core needs are able to be met. Sure. Um, it's, it's too easy to, to be eager to, to please and it puts the onus on, on you know, not delivering to, to those commitments. So generally, some of those early stages of identifying and understanding stakeholder uh, needs and being able to categorise them so you can effectively communicate with them and engage. Mm. Um, certainly through design and, and early stages uh, is, is really important to, to build that trust, build that honesty. You've, you've got to break down what it is they want into manageable uh, items that you can deliver on. Sure, sure. Yeah, we've had a lot of feedback from clients that you know, clients that we placed, and that's one of your strengths that stakeholder stakeholder engagement. Um, but how how would you how would you adapt, Steve, to to the different different stakeholders? Well, um, yeah, I think listening um, when you've if you've got the luxury of coming in at the uh, early stages of a program, and that is post business case, um, and you're you know you're moving through prep and getting ready maybe for for detailed design, whether that be through workshops or or or, or what. But um, uh, what you'd want to do is um, is have one on one meetings, try and build a rapport. Mm -hmm talk about what you're planning to do in the short term to ensure we've got the right people from that stakeholders organization engaged because mm -hmm. that's a big another big challenge you know, quite often good people that is people that can impart knowledge on how things are done now but have a vision to how things should be and have the tolerance and patience to work in a system implementation or a software development life cycle uh, is very rare and quite often those people you know can't be backfilled or backfilling is really hard so if you can determine who that is you're bringing in and that stakeholder try and uh, look at what can be done to backfill them so you're maximizing their engagement mm -hmm. is really important C certainly in detailed design um, if you're able to um, use a methodology which is more flexible more hybrid agile that is you know you you've you know uh, what's, what scope you've got to do and you're able to break it down into uh, smaller components mm -hmm. um, and, and maybe uh, provide some flexibility on how much time you need from that, that resource to, to, uh, to manage you know, your, your sprint delivery mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to a full waterfall delivery. Um, that's, that's obviously a benefit. But you've, you've got to be able to build trust up front but give them confidence that um, what what that engagement with them is going to be is clear. Um, sure, there's going to be issues, but they would want to know about those as early as possible, um, and just ensure you've got the forum for, uh, for for their input and and for them to be able to provide that feedback. Invariably, you're going to have conflict and decisions needed, so generally you're 
some of your um, your, your uh, management planning that you do up front has a, a, a you know decision maker, which is your product owner or your sponsor, mm-hmm. that, to to resolve those, and that's understood by by those that stakeholder group. But you know that a lot of that is suck and see through the early stages of, of that um, that design and engagement. Sure. Okay. So coming back to your um, looking looking at your team within um, a project, what are your top three imperatives you look for within your team when you are delivering uh, delivering your project? Well, obviously talented people, uh, <laughs> but I, I don't think individual talent is enough. I mean, what I look for is um, you know I think I think the strength of a of a high performance team is not th- just in talent alone. It's it's the confidence of those resources to to seek out answers when they haven't got them themselves okay. from a network that they may already have within mm-hmm. the organisation, or they're raising it to me, uh, or or at an architect level where they don't know. I think uh, this is one of the challenges of, of remote teaming, which we're all faced with now, is ensuring that those resources have that confidence to speak up when they're stuck, and they're not going to burn time. You know, uh, running around in circles or trying to uh, trying to dream up the answers themselves that ultimately you know it's becomes almost, unstuck. It's almost having that ability to ask for help if they don't know the exactly, answer. Exactly. Yeah? Exactly. Uh, that can know, be challenging. That can be challenging sometimes. It is. It is, and you've got to find a way to make them feel comfortable and confident to speak up. Hmm. Um, I mean, knowing about issues early is is one of the secrets of. Uh, of managing risk and um, and and delivering a uh, a successful project, uh, not hearing about it through um, at, at, you know at the back end or um, when you're uh, when you're in a test cycle. And how do you how do you encourage that, Steve? Do you do you have regular catch ups with the team, or do you, like, how how do you encourage that from the from the team? Well, a couple of points. One would be um, delegating as much autonomy to the, those resources either groups of resources or or individual mm-hmm. which you know is a characteristic of, uh, of of an agile team in in that that authority is passed to managing their 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 scope of work mm-hmm. I, I mean you have a scope of work but the order in which that scope is delivered is is determined by the team mm-hmm. um, but yeah it, it, it similar in a way to stakeholder management you, you obviously need to try and uh, know, you know the background of, of the resource you've got, trying to validate not just what their CV reads, but 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 you know speaking to people that have worked on projects with them in the past to to just understand the uh, the unwritten rules uh, that that uh, that they they've been able to pick up because um, unwritten rules is you know is I think is is fundamental to every team mm-hmm. that you're expecting team members to to pick up. It's all part of that collaboration with each other that um, being able to work as a team is is generally where most resources you know that they, they have they're in the right place they want to they want to work sure. they, they, they want to work effectively um, and I think building that rapport through clear communication and frequent communication initially and and clear direction is really uh, really important what other what other imperatives do you look for within your in your team um yeah, probably accountability as well. Um, you know, program program manager is never going to be able to uh, mother a whole team in terms of being 
responsible for every element of you know of, of, of providing artifacts uh, of, of monitoring um, that output mm-hmm. I think just you know the fundamental um, reference material that they may they need to consult obviously a, an up-to-date schedule um, knowing what their resource plan is mm-hmm. um, having a you know a detailed design that hopefully they've been able had an opportunity to provide input to it's not just a like um, an architect or a or a, or a you know integration consultant that's written a, a tech spec and handed it over to a build team, there, there needs to be you know collaboration in um, in landing on that design so that uh, that team can 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 work effectively from day one. What what I, I tend to do and and most customers seem to be on board with this is adopting you know the agile principle of lean documentation that is you do the minimum to agree a high level design yeah but quite often the artifacts which were typically you know part of a formal signed off process up front such as technical specs mm-hmm. um you know functional specs to to a certain degree but um if you've got a, a like a decent requirements register um my view is you know you sh- you should be able to respond to every requirement in that register uh, of you know tying it to a process or a solution area or solution component mm-hmm. and the technical spec will come together in the in the first half of the build so that you can have a midpoint design review with the customer you know using those documents mm-hmm. but it allows you to get started with build early without you know waiting for all of the exhaustive detail design to be done up front. If, if you get started early, you can get baseline configuration done. Um, you can show some of that working software early, if, mm-hmm. if possible, mm-hmm. through part of your planning. Excellent. Okay. Now, coming back to your um, your project management methodology, can can you define that, Steve? Well, it it it, it very much differs depending on what you're faced with. If, if it's a waterfall uh, delivery. Um, yeah, you know, that methodology is is quite tied to to uh, you know particular Q gates through or quality gates through the phases. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the idea of Q gates, I think, is really really important because um, the formalising of you know what uh, what checks what is done, covering the whole spectrum of environments, um, business engagement, solution data i mean there's a lot of different facets that need to come together to make a project successful and qu- mm. it's very easy to overlook some of the fundamentals in the early stages certainly of of design and, and build so generally the queue gate that you um you have to move from design into into build really it's worthwhile to formalize that in terms of a um, an assessment mm-hmm. um, based on agreed criteria and for that matter during the planning phase, what is the success criteria that makes the project a success in the eyes of the customer? So working hard on building that success criteria up front mm-hmm. and elements of that is is referred to in the queue gates of the various phases. Uh, it, it helps you know that you're on track to, um, to meet that criteria uh, in the realization phase, to get out of realization and deploy. Sure, sure. Okay. And um, what would you describe as your your biggest failure, and and what did you learn from it, Steve? Um, well, yeah, thankfully I haven't experienced any uh, 
monumental uh, failures uh, that have resulted in litigation. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's a that's a, a good baseline. Um, but look, sure, everyone's got things that could have been done better in hindsight. Uh, big failures for me um, is around. Um, scoping. Um, I came into project management through managing particular phases of delivery, mm -hmm. so um, mainly through data migration. I yep. did some test management as well um, and running blueprints and you know, fairly major design mm -hmm. um, workshops with customers. Uh, probably out of that, my biggest learning was, was in data migration. Uh, there were a lot of failings. I mean, data migration is tricky because it's depended on as early as possible in the build cycle. So you can go through cycles of, of trial conversions. Yep. So, uh, but to get the entire design of your extract, your translation and your loading, getting that design and build, the building the tools up front is, is, is a huge task. Mm -hmm. um, quite often it gets left till, till late. I let it I let it drift a little bit and um, we were caught out and basically had some significant schedule sh slippage in the program because we, we were just caught short on being ready for, uh, for migrating real data. Mm -hmm. um, and mock-ups will only ever take you, mock-up data will only take you so far in the early stages of, mm. of build and, and early stages of, uh, of testing. So um, can't emphasize enough to invest both in time and resources in, in scoping out your, your, your key data migration requirements mm. and ensuring you've got quality data to feed into uh, not only your, uh, your, your build but, but unit testing so that the code that's getting delivered by the build team you know, is, is working software as early as possible. But, but to, to get the most out of your integration test cycles, you, you really need um, to be working on con converted data. Sure, sure. Okay. So um, obviously you mentioned earlier you started at um, Hewlett-Packard and then you've done um, 15 years of contracting before taking a, a perm role at, um, at SAP. Now you would have worked with multiple people, multiple different leaders, multiple different stakeholders. Who, who would you say has been um, a big influence on your, your career and, and what did they teach you? Well, yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I'd have to say my father. Um, my father was... Um, a senior quality surveyor in where I grew up in Perth. He, um, he led one of the biggest construction companies in Perth, mm -hmm. um, then moved out on his own, set up a very successful project management uh, consulting practice. Um, I've always looked up to him as being a really high achiever, and he's come through the hard way. I mean, building and, and uh, ensuring a... Uh, a, a big construction company not only survives but but grows mm -hmm. um, when uh, he, he pretty much was uh, was dealing with unions dealing with you know um, very difficult customers um, I mean I'm only thankful I, I don't have to deal with unions <laughs> as well as uh, difficult customers but um, no he, he shared a lot of his learnings with me and he, he put a lot of time aside uh, when I was young and, and he had a massive influence on my, um, my perspective and uh, just how to, uh, how to try and get things done, mm -hmm. um, which at the end of the day, we've all got to find ways to get things done through any number of challenges. And you don't get it done through railroading, you, you get it done through combining soft skills with 
with tenacity uh, and uh, I'm still learning. I've got a lot to learn, but, but what he taught me was, was really significant in my life. That's brilliant. Who would you, um, thinking coming back to work, like who would you like to hear on the, on the podcast? Well, I think, um, I think there's a lot of um, big organisations playing in, uh, in the SAP space now in terms of moving to, uh, to new technologies. There's, there's so much that is available and, and you know, can be utilised effectively. We've now got a lot of players from what used to be the big four, but now we could probably say mm. is uh, big five uh, with, uh, with TCS and Wipro uh, in the mix as well. But any of the, uh, the leaders, the thought leaders or the delivery execs from, um, from consultancies that SAP... You know, have strong partnerships with, which mm-hmm. is a major emphasis of, of where we're going. We we can't do, uh, we, we don't even pretend to be able to, to to manage the the volume of work. So um, we've got a very robust partner organisation that that I've really only embraced, um, you know, to advantage uh, recently. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly doing some really good work with TCS uh, and Accenture yeah. and. Um, Seeing, yeah, hearing from some of the leaders within those organisations would be would be great. I think. So I think you'd be uh, I think you'd be happy. Bruce McKinnon's just uh, agreed to come on the podcast. Obviously, he's working for Accenture right. yeah. um, at the moment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we certainly approach those other organisations as well. But um, now, thanks for your time today, Steve. It's a pleasure. 